Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have asked me through Patreon. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, then your questions go to the top of my question queue. So, um, so that is also another place where you can get questions answered. And also, I do uh, once a month a uh, special Patreon-only uh, Q&A conversation hangouts with my Patreon supporters who want to interact with me in person. All right, so this week I posted a podcast with... Uh, John Sweeney, I did an interview with him, and he talked, uh, gave wonderful uh, rundown of his experiences with Scientology and also his boots-on-the-ground experience in North Korea as well as in the Middle East. And we talked about how cult thinking enters into uh, these government and totalitarian systems as well as, of course, his experiences with Scientology. So if you haven't checked out that podcast, I suggest you do so. John Sweeney is a uh, current BBC journalist and has a lot of things to say. Very, very interesting stuff. Also, before we get to the questions, last week I mentioned this at the end of the show. I wanted to put it here at the beginning so nobody missed this opportunity because, you know, it's kind of a limited opportunity. Uh, I've got uh, copies of my book, Scientology A to Xenu, An Insider's Guide to What Scientology is Really All About. And if you want to get an autographed copy of this book, then you can uh, PayPal me um, the money for me to, uh, to get the book, which is uh, $20, but then also the postage for me to send it to you. So if you live in the United States, that's $25. If you live in Canada, uh, it's $30. And if you live out beyond the oceans, uh, in either direction, then it's a little, it gets a little expensive. It's 20 bucks for shipping out to those areas. I found that out when I sent some out last week. So anyway, so that would be $20 for the book and then either five, 10 or $20 for the shipping, depending on where you live. And if you'd like that, then just uh, PayPal me. Link is uh, below uh, in the comment section of this, or you can also uh, comment to me or email me and ask me about it and I'll get you uh, directions on how to do that. So now, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Kristen Halloran, I would love to hear more about your personal experiences with children in Scientology. I think you said that they didn't hang around the orgs anymore and Sea Org members couldn't have children. Did you interact with children at all? Idly wondering what David Miscavige would do if a little kid accidentally stepped on his toe or something. Hey Kristen, thanks for the question. And I don't recall saying kids weren't around orgs that much anymore. They they are. Um, here's what I can tell you. Uh, and you know, of course, I grew up as a child in Scientology, and there were not a lot of courses or actions for kids to do in the '70s when I was growing up. People weren't particularly, uh, at least not that I know, or weren't weren't you know big on. I mean, sometimes kids would be coming around. I grew up around the Pasadena Mission, so I and some other Scientology kids were around there a little bit, but there weren't tons of us. Um, once I became a staff member, there, then I started you know, servicing the public, so to speak. Um, there were kids who would come along from time to time, and I was a course room supervisor, so it was my job to you know, sit them down, teach them how to do the classes, and we had to um, Hubbard had a, um, an idea or theory, a recommendation for dealing with kids that you short, you deal with them in short bursts of time rather than try to make them do big, long, 
you know, drawn out things. Like if you had a two and a half hour course slot where you were supposed to be working on course, you might, you know, you, the, the, the children there, and I'm talking about children maybe under 10 or under 11 years old might only be, have to be there for half an hour or for 15 minutes or something at a slot. You wouldn't try to force kids to uh, be on course for long periods of time, although sometimes they would be. Um, I mean, you had the course room guidelines and rules, so you had to kind of play with it a little bit. You weren't supposed to just let people wander in and out, but kids are kind of a special thing because their attention span is not very long most of the time. Sometimes when they get particularly interested in something, they can be amazingly attention-oriented on something, but generally speaking, kids' attention flits about from this to that to the other thing, and it's a, it's a difficult task for an adult to supervise a kid on one particular thing for hours at a time. That doesn't ever really work very well. Also, that applied in Scientology to, that first applied and mainly applied to auditing children. Hubbard said right from almost the get-go in a book called Child Dynetics, which might or might not have been Hubbard's actual advice. That book was compiled by staff members of the uh, old Hubbard Dynetics Foundation, not, you know, based on Hubbard's works. So I can't tell for sure whether Hubbard ever specifically gave this direction, but it's part of Scientology technology that children be short-sessioned. You only run them for a few commands or for a little bit of time to, you know, any kind of change or positive result of any kind, and boom, you let the kid go. Um, and also Hubbard said that, uh, or it was in, in the materials, that sometimes if you're auditing a child, you're trying to, and, and most of the auditing would be very objective type auditing, look at the wall, touch the desk, kind of auditing, more so than, than trying to run you know, moments of pain and unconsciousness out of them. I never saw anybody really seriously try to do that for any period of time. Um, but objective type processing you do with kids all day long. And, um, and they might turn around and try to do it on you. And Hubbard said, you're a fool if you don't do it. As the auditor, if you're sitting there in the auditing session and you're telling the kid, touch the wall or pick up the block or, or walk over to that table or something, the kid might try to turn it around on you and, and you would, of course, comply with his commands too. Whereas when you're auditing an adult, you would never do something like that. But kids, you know, Hubbard talked about kids and the back and forth of it. Generally, in terms of kids in, a, in Scientology you know, orgs not doing services or not being involved in doing uh, Scientology-related activities, sure, sometimes we would babysit kids or they'd, you know, the parents wouldn't have a babysitter or somebody to leave them with, and so they'd run around the org and you'd have to control them or put them in front of a TV most of the time is what we would end up doing, just like as done, you know, in many other places. Um, or we might try to get them on a service or something, and then they would count, see, as gross income because the parent's paying for the course, and then they count as a body, you know, on course, so you get to count that as a statistic, even if they're not doing a whole lot. On the basic services of Scientology, all you really want is you want bodies and chairs. You want warm bodies in the course room. And then you want to get them through the courses. The course completions are the key statistic that's counted in the, in the basic courses. When you get up into the academy and the major services, you have student points and you have you know, other statistics than you have completions uh, and points. So uh, that's a little bit of a different system up there. And you could put kids in the, in the advanced courses, or in the major services, I should say, not advanced courses, in the major services. You could stick them up there and have them on some courses, but again, you're, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
you're taking your life in your hands when you're doing that as a course room supervisor. Um, I have heard, as far as the last part of your question, I've heard that David Miscavige is terrified of kids. Uh, he's afraid that their BTs are going to, body, their body thetans are going to jump on him or something. I, I just really catch, you know, take that as a rumor because I don't think Miscavige really believes in body thetans as such. But I could be totally wrong on that. I, have, I really have no idea. But I, 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 I kind of think that's a joke. Um, I've never heard anybody outside, you know, when I was in Scientology and outside of Scientology, I never heard anybody else having such a fear of children. I, I, you know, I mean, I always thought children were either cute, interesting, or super annoying. That was basically my attitude towards kids, depending on what work I was doing and, you know, having to deal with them. In PAC, in the, at Big Blue, we would have street fairs and festivals and we would bring jumpy castles and, and trampolines and, and, you know, makeup for the kids and clowns and stuff like that. They would try to appeal to, you know, getting families in, but I don't think they really um, were basing that on, on surveys of what Scientologists actually wanted. I mean, sometimes that would, you know, they'd, they'd roast hot dogs and hamburgers and just try to have people come and, and, and be part of you know, activities on the street, always in the direction of trying to find the parents and corner them and getting them to pay for their next service or give money. Uh, that was always, or recruit them for staff or the Sea Org. That was always the intention with that. Um, kids were always a barrier as far as that goes because they were just, you know, as a Sea Org member, I always thought kids were more distracting than they were anything else and kind of annoying because I was always so focused and busy on what I was doing. And, and kids are kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of the Sea Org attitude towards children was not particularly a compassionate or sympathetic view. But we really didn't think about kids very much either. Now, as far as Sea Org children, as far as the children of Sea Org members, those we kind of regarded as, I guess, in the same way, maybe, um, you know, I hate to go into this or, or draw these comparisons, but I, I don't know how else to describe it right now. Um, I guess we kind of looked at them more like Hitler Youth, you know, like how the Nazis would think about Hitler Youth, like those are the up-and-coming members. Those are the up-and-coming people you want to indoctrinate, you want to get them on board, you you know, that kind of thing. That's kind of how we thought about them. And of course, that's what they were going to do. And if they ever did something different than that or dared to have an independent thought or dared to not want to be part of Scientology or the Sea Org, then they were just instantly, instantly became a nuisance and a problem and an annoyance and just get them out of here. So they're like, kind of a you know, low threshold of, of patience or tolerance for that. Uh, you toe the line or you're dead to me kind of thing. That was kind of what I remember about kids uh, from a Sea Org member point of view. You know, not a great one. And uh, that's kind of pretty much that's a good sort of general survey of, of, of my experience with kids in, in Scientology is they were pretty much like adults. I mean, in many ways, in terms of we regarded them as potential statistics or potential, you know, what production value did they have for us? Uh, otherwise, you know, leave them at home, get a babysitter, they're annoying, and that was that. And of course, I say that all now, thinking um, that kids can still be annoying sometimes, but, <laughs> um, but generally I like kids a lot more now than I ever did when I was a Scientologist or a Sea Org member. Stephen Willis. 
I've heard former Sea Org members say that getting funding approved for even something as small as a box of new pens can be quite an ordeal. When David Miscavige wants to, however, he can openly splash huge amounts of cash on one of his projects. Does struggling, and struggling only to see DM's people come in and spend millions with a nod of a head, cause cognitive dissonance in staff and Sea Org workers? Did you ever see anything which apparently had an unlimited budget like that? As a Sea Org member, um, you if you run a request money for something, then you have to wait until Thursday at the end of the week, and then you submit what's called a purchase order, or and that has to have a, a completed staff work or a CSW attached to it that lays out what the problem is, what the information is regarding that problem, and why this is that you need this money for the solution to that problem. And this was always a constant battle. If you wanted new shoes or if you, you know, uniform parts, which was a constant, constant struggle, uh, you were very fortunate to get uniform parts ever approved. It would be months, even years between getting those kinds of things. Basic admin supplies and stuff, you could kind of just go pick up at Treasury. That wasn't really that big of a deal. It wasn't a hard time to find a pen. But uh, if you wanted, if you needed a new desk, or you needed, you know, like a computer, or you know, a computer system, when we when we set that whole thing, um, that was a huge expenditure. You know, it was like ten, twelve thousand dollars or something, and um, that was a big deal. That was that uh, we had to fight to get that through the financial planning, because the financial planning that happens each week for each Scientology organization, it's not for Scientology as a whole. It, 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 every single organization has their own weekly. FP. And the FP looks at the allocation for the week based on how much income they produced and how much the percentage of that income they can spend on such things as internal requests for stuff. And if you didn't make enough income to have any percentage for that, then there was simply no money. And of course, those percentages of the allocations always happened after a certain percentage came off the top to go up to management for you know payments to flag it was called or film lease payments or various required percentages of income that had to go up the line. The only time those percentages weren't taken off the top and paid is if all of the money was needed in order to say pay the rent or um, you know a mortgage payment or a property tax payment which happened from time to time. Um, that sort of you know balloon payment I, I think maybe I should say. Uh, that kind of thing happened from time to time at organizations. So, um, so it was always a, a, you know, a roll of the dice as to whether there was going to be any money there for you and then whether your particular purchase order was going to get approved because there would be a whole pile of purchase orders submitted by everybody. For, and then when the Sea Org, this included you know, uniform parts or office equipment or um, payments for various things or you know sometimes you'd, you'd want to set aside money for things you'd want a certain cut of the money to be just pushed over here because you were may say building up for a computer system so um, so it was constantly a struggle because there was never enough money the system is is built so that you know a lot of the money goes up the line and then you have you know, not a lot of money being made by most of these organizations, which is odd but true. Uh, the organizations aren't aren't necessarily making all the money. There are uh, IAS, International Association of Scientologists, salespeople, regs, who are running around individually getting people to do straight donations for things, and that's some of those donations get big money. 
that money comes in, but it goes straight to the IAS. We never saw any of that money, ever, not any little part of it. So, uh, and IAS donations have been the major thing being asked for in Scientology for years. Same with building fundraising. We never saw any of that money. It didn't go into the percentages. It didn't go into the weekly allocation uh, stack, so to speak. Okay, so um, now your question about, I just wanted to explain all that to make it clear what the environment was like and, and what it was like just in a regular week to try to get money for things. It was, it was very, very frustrating. So then when you see David Miscavige have all the finer things of life or you hear about this or you see these projects, there wasn't really a lot of cognitive dissonance going on for me personally. Maybe for other people there was, but I never heard about it. It was certainly nothing that anybody would ever be complaining about. Um, we knew that there was money around. I mean, we knew that big money was going to the IAS. We were the ones making it, or we were watching it be made. We knew that there was money going, of course, into the building fundraising, and that, of course, was always for the buildings. So when Miscavige had nice things, we figured that, well, he was getting birthday presents and Christmas presents from us, because we were always giving, you know, little bits, 10 bucks or whatever, come Christmas time or come birthday time. Um, and that adds up. I mean, you get, you know, uh, like when I worked at the management organization, that was a group of, you know, almost 200, maybe over 200 people. Uh, they're all giving, you know, 10 bucks. That's $2,000. So, you know, you can, you know that he's going to, you know, 2,000 bucks gets a very nice pair of shoes or gets him, uh, you know, this or that or the other thing. And, and uh, we'd always get little thank you notes come, you know, sent back down from RTC over those kind of things. So we kind of figured that, you know, some of it came from that. Or we just thought, well, he deserves whatever he's getting because he's the hardest working Sea Org member uh, in all of Scientology. And he is so dedicated and so hardcore. And plus, of course, he's at the top. He should look good. He should be a you know shining, stellar reflection of all of that, all that is good and wonderful in Scientology. So it was that kind of thinking more that that I ran into. As far as the projects go, like building projects or um, you know building the Bridge Publications warehouse with the printing facility and all the the money for that, or uh, whatever other special projects were being funded, the superpower building and stuff. I don't know, we just figured the money came from somewhere, it came from the IAS or it came from the years of the church building up reserves and I knew when I was in Scientology that the church invested some of its money and got returns on those investments. So I didn't really think about it too much and the, the truth of that is that I didn't really have a lot of time to think about it either. I mean, let's, just, let's not forget that I was in an environment that wasn't nine to five, it was eight to midnight, you know, and uh, this was an environment that didn't give you a lot of time to sit and think and contemplate about things like that or be, you know, sort of wondering what was really going on. I mean, I didn't really didn't give it a lot of thought. I was so busy all the time and so freaked out most of the time about my own personal survival and about, you know, my own well-being that I didn't give a whole lot of thought to David Miscavige, uh, except when I saw him speaking at events or if he was on base. And of course, if he was on base, it was all hands on deck, everybody, and, uh, you know, make sure everything's clean and your desk is in order and you don't have a bunch of, you know, uh, backlogged, stale dated 
communications and stuff like that. So, uh, so that was kind of you know where my mind would go whenever it came to David Miscavige. So, I hope that answers the question. I gave a lot of data there because I wanted to kind of give the the bigger picture of that. But that's uh, anyway. Let me know if if you have anything else on that, Steve. Nick C. What sort of relationships tend to form between twins in the RPF? Or is it all individual and it doesn't make sense to generalize? All right, so RPF, Rehabilitation Project Force. I've talked about this at length. I'm not going to explain it all again. I will just say that in terms of the twinships, when you work with, you, you are assigned somebody else to work with. Your job is to make them better. Their job is to make you better. That's the, that's the motto of the RPF is, you know, um, or one of the, the, the mantras of the RPF is, um, you know, it's not, did you get better? It's, did you make somebody else better? Okay. So, um, and if you fit that in with everything else I've said about the RPF, you get that it's just more craziness. The relationship between twins is not generally, um, it's often contentious. It's often strained. Um, sometimes not, sometimes it's very friendly, but but not really, because the thing is, you're acting as that person's confessor, and you know they're 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 the ones who are they're the confessee. They're the one telling you all their sins, and you are not. You know, you're sitting there neutrally listening to all this, but then after the auditing session, you have to write all this up. Everything they tell you is written down in reports, and it's seen by other people. And the twin, your your twin, has to be get has to now make you do things to take responsibility for and make amends for the things that you've confessed. And so sometimes they can end up being kind of harsh because you're sitting there going, "Well, I didn't think it was that big of a deal," and they're like, "Oh no, you got to do this and this and this, and you got to read this from Hubbard and you got to study this and all this kind of stuff." So sometimes you'll get into these arguments with your twin over stuff, and it can get a little heated sometimes. And then, um, but you're always on the, you're always kind of, you're always on pins and needles in the RPF because um, you don't want to buck the system too much. You don't want to fight back too hard or basically show too much individuality or independent thought. Because if you do, then the system starts, you know, the whole group starts coming in because your twin can go tell the master at arms, which is the ethics officer. Uh, for help, you know, and then, then the ethics officer is involved, and now you've got this authoritarian structure uh, going into play to force you to realize the extent of your badness and the error of your ways, and you have to kowtow and bow and scrape, and yes, I'm very sorry, and of course I was wrong for ever having any independent thought about that. So, um, so, that, so, it, so it's contentious that way. Also, nobody wants to be there. I mean, you're on the RPF, kind of by choice, but just barely. I mean, you really don't want to be there, but you're forced to be there because the circumstances of your life are such that you have no choice or, or almost no choice unless you just want to step entirely out of Scientology. Then you can walk away easily. But, who, you know, when you're in that mindset, that's not the place you're at. You know, you're not... You're not you know, you guys out there look in on the world of Scientology or the Sea Org and you think, well, that's crazy. I would never do that. And you're right. That's why you're not doing it. But for us who were in it, we believed we were totally committed to this. So as bad as it could get, and it got really bad, 
we still thought that was better than leaving and being in the outside world, which was, you know, basically being exiled to hell. As far as we thought, that was our frame of mind. So as hellish as the RPF is, we thought outside was worse. So we, we kept going in it. Th those of us who, who got through the program, most people realize, oh, the outside world's not so bad and they leave. They, you know, they start the, the, break, the, the brainwashing, so to speak, starts breaking down. Um, you know, didn't for those of us who got through the bloody thing. It took me longer, but I'm a slow learner. Okay, so as far as the twin relationship goes, that's where the contentiousness kind of comes from. Um, also, you know, they know everything about you. You know everything about them. I mean, that's the relationship that develops is you learn everything about this person way more than you ever wanted to know about anybody. I mean, you know everything. You know about their family, you know about their upbringing, you know about their childhood, you know about their teenage years, you know about how they got into Scientology. All of this stuff comes out in the course of doing the confessions, of doing the, the sex checking. Um, and you learn very, very intimate details about them. And sometimes those details are not very savory and they don't make the person very likable. So, you know, that's a, that's a kind of an issue too. Um, so I guess there's a lot of things going on in that relationship. It's complex. I had a twin that I was getting along with and then he, you know, had some things happen and then he wanted to leave and he ended up leaving the Sea Org. I then got um, twinned up with a woman from South Africa who I really didn't get along with very well. She was, um, she was temperamental and, uh, and she was, did not have a lot of patience, and she had very firm convictions about, um, about how I should be, and I wasn't that way, and so I had to kind of keep fitting into that way. And it was just kind of difficult, you know? It was just a, it was a difficult, rocky relationship for me and my twin. I did observe other twinships not having that same level of difficulty, and I did see some twinships where sexual attraction became an issue when between men and women uh, twinships. Um, I never saw a homosexual relationship develop on the RPF, uh, ever. I mean, it was, it's already verboten in Scientology. It's already heavily verboten in the Sea Org. And then on the RPF, it would be inexcusable. I mean, there would just be, it would just be unthinkable. So, um, but I did see people, I did, I did hear about, I've talked with Nora on my podcast about how People would go off and, you know, have sex and this kind of stuff. So that was rare, very, very rare, but it did happen. Um, so that was also something that would, you know, sometimes develop. But those, that always ended badly. Always. Uh, you know, it's not like you find your mate on the RPF. That's, that, that's very rare. I saw one couple. Uh, they were not twinned when they were on the RPF. But they... they both independently finished the RPF at different times and then got together outside the RPF. And, they, and that, that happened, again, very infrequently, but it did happen from time to time. But that wasn't between twins. I never, I never saw that happen between a twinship. So that's what I can say about that. Jonathan Mark. Scientology seems to be growing in Taiwan. Do you think that the Church of Scientology will learn from its mistakes in the Western countries? Or will it reg, RPF, and disconnect Taiwanese adherents until they leave too? 
Is cult behavior so ingrained in the Church of Scientology that it can't stop? It's a good question, and you can also check out my video that I posted this last Thursday where I address some of the things, some of the window dressing changes that Scientology has been supposedly making in order to be a kinder, gentler sea organization or Scientology, but in fact they're not really making any systemic changes at all. And yes, I think the answer to your question is basically that uh, they will not learn from their mistakes, uh, so no on that. And yes, they will continue their cultish behavior because Scientology is that way. From the very first videos I made, I pointed out that destruction and self-destruction is in its DNA. It is a destructive cult. It lines up on almost every characteristic of a destructive cult. Um, you can find the, those, that list of characteristics on my website. There's a, there's a page, there's a tab on the uh, menu for cult characteristics, and you can check that out. Scientology fits almost every one of them. And um, so, because it's an authoritarian control system that is basically exists to make money and, and feed power to its leader, um, that's, there is no reason for the leader to create any change in that system. Why would he? He has no interest in doing so. Everything's fine as far as he's concerned. So, you know, as far as the Taiwan expansion or any other expansion the church engages in, they're going to continue their pattern of operation. And um, they're shrinking. They're not really growing. And I, I understand that they do have membership in Taiwan, that that is an active situation there, an active scene. I think part of the reason for that, I've pointed out before, is that we do not have the critics' materials translated for them. So they're not seeing or hearing or, or aware of a lot of what we know here in the Western cultures. Uh, with Scientology specifically, so that could be part of the issue as to why. But if they're going to follow the exact same pattern, because Taiwanese people aren't Martians, they're human beings, and they're going to go through the same rigmarole and the same learning curve that everybody in the West already has gone through with Scientology, and eventually they will reject it, just like the Western nations are now doing. So that's kind of the situation there. Dave Stewart. Which current Sea Org member would you most like to see leave the church and start talking other than Miscavige? Well, I would really like to see Shelly Miscavige leave. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but if somebody were to leave who would be able to produce the most damage to David Miscavige personally and Scientology as a whole, it would, without question, it would be her. Uh, the name brand, I mean, the brand recognition for one, right? She's been married to David Miscavige for all these years. And two, she's been married to David Miscavige all these years. She knows almost everything there is to know. So I am sure she would have amazing stories to tell. And she knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak, figuratively. I'm not saying literally. And she would be able to give inside skinny that no one else not Marty Rathbun, not Mike Rinder, no one has, has knowledge of. So, um, so that's kind of a hands-down, pretty. that's a pretty easy question to answer as far as that goes. There are other people who have worked at Int Management for many, many years who are in the hole or whatever the current equivalent of the hole is. Uh, Guillaume Lesev, uh, Ray Midoff, uh, Heber Gench, although uh, you know, he's already said he's never coming out. 
So um, they would have a great deal of knowledge about a great many things. And it would take, you know, it would take months, years to debrief them on all the information that they have in their heads about things. Um, but even they wouldn't hold a candle to what Shelley Miscavige would be able to say. I would also say, uh, the, the, the question here was about Sea Org members, but I would also say, I think that actually, I think more damaging to Scientology than Shelley Miscavige could be. And this is a, this is a coin toss here, okay? I'm, I'm, I, this is a judgment call and I'm not 100% on this. But I think if Tom Cruise were to come out, it would be game over for Scientology pretty much overnight. I mean, really game over. Because that guy has so many people who follow him blindly. It, it's, it's disappointing, uh, even infuriating sometimes, to see the ignorance of people who are fans of celebrities and how far they will go to rationalize or justify, justify the celebrity's bad behavior. I mean, we have, it's, we have documentation, we have, we have testimony about people who have been harmed by Tom Cruise personally, who have been abused by him, who were used as basically free labor. I, I, I avoid the word slave labor, but, you know, basically, uh, you know, for his personal aggrandizement and, and help and renovations on his hangar and his house and all that. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much he takes advantage. So if he were to, to turn and realize the error of his ways, which I don't think he's ever going to do because the man is an utter narcissist, but if he did, that would be gigantic, huge, because millions of people would be instantly interested in what he had to say about Scientology. And all of the celebrity brainwashing that goes on just because he happens to have a, a nice grin and they like what he does on screen, which is not him, by the way. Tom Cruise is an extremely different person from what you see on the screen. Very different man. So they love that and they think that's who he is and that's not who he is at all. Anyway, if he were to actually turn, it's not so much the information he could give. He could give some, I'm sure. I'm sure he's had some very interesting private conversations with David Miscavige. But it's just the fact that he turns and so many people listen to him that, you know, there would just, I mean, all the people who rationalize or, or think, oh, Scientology is just another religion. It's just another belief system. Why are you down on him for his beliefs when it has nothing to do with his beliefs? That's not why I have a problem with Tom Cruise. But that's what they think. I, that's what they think we, us critics, have a problem with him over. And it's not. It has nothing to do with his religious beliefs. It has to do with what he does with those beliefs, the actions he has carried out, and the actions that he supports. As the most visible Scientologist on the planet, he represents and supports an abusive, destructive, authoritarian system that is a scam. So that's who he is, in, for real. So if he were to actually say that that's who he was being, and recognize that that's what he was representing and speak out against it, all those justifications and rationalizations of all his fandom would go away and they would see, for really no other reason than he told them to, 
what Scientology was really all about. And they would stop with the apologism and the, and the rationalization of it. So, all right, I think I made my point pretty clear on that. So I think those would be the people I'd like to see come out and speak out. Um, and that's, there you go. It is time for Flash Answers. The Crackpot. Star Trek, The Next Generation, or the original series? Which do you think is better? God, man, this is a tough question. This is actually a tough question um, because they're so different. I mean, they're based on the same core principles and the same basic ideas, but there was a lot about The Next Generation I didn't particularly like. I thought it was preachy. Um, I thought uh, Picard, especially... Um, some of the episodes involving Q or involving some, you know, superior forces and how humanity somehow, you know, outwitted or outsmarted them because of our wonderful ethics or something. I mean, I don't know. It was, it really rubbed me the wrong way, those things, because I thought there was so much lost potential there. Uh, you present this being, this Q, this, this higher powered being who can literally do anything. And you talk down to him and condescend to this being because you have some moral issue with him and you, and, and it's presented as though, of course, the human beings are, are right. No, man, come on. You, when you're at that level as a being with unlimited power like that, you have a whole different ethics system. And that was not explored at all. The morality, the differences, the, you know, just, just that, just that. Those episodes alone I had a big issue with. There were other things going on in Next Generation I didn't like either. So, so I guess I'd have to go back old school uh, for me, you know. And, of course, I, I grew up with original series. So, um, so I guess that's what I'm going to go with. And also because, you know, Captain Kirk's my captain, man. That's, that's him. And him, it, it, the, let me say this. Him and Bones and Spock, that, that trinity... Uh, did not repeat in Next Generation, and nor nor should it have. It was all sort of embodied in Picard, with a with Riker as the as the more excitable sidekick or whatever. So I, you know, I know there's a lot more you can read into it, but for me, that Trinity is kind of the the core of what Star Trek was always about, and always should continue to be about. And I think that I think that message. Or that concept got lost somewhere along the way. So that's my take on Star Trek. I know it's, you know, my opinion. I don't, I don't lay it on anybody else or think anybody else needs to think this way. You asked, so that's my answer to the question. Mark P. I seem to recall you mentioning a brother in one of your videos. Am I dubbing that in or do you have a brother? Any other siblings? Any of them still in? I do have a brother. Uh, he was never a Scientologist. He managed to avoid it kind of the same way my son did his whole life. And my parents were kind of okay with that. They used Scientology on him. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, pretty, pretty badly didn't work, actually. And he didn't really want anything to do with it. So I never really had to worry about getting him out because he was never in. Aaron. During one of my explorations of Los Angeles, I made a point to wander around the block of both Big Blue and Celebrity Center. It struck me, and I'd never noticed, that in all pictures of the buildings, all window blinds are drawn. What, if any, is the logic behind those managing the properties? So you can't see in, obviously. Uh, you'd see bunk beds, you'd see unmade bunk beds, you'd see stuff hanging around in those windows, you'd see people sometimes where they're not supposed to be. 
because during the day nobody's supposed to be up in their uh, dorm rooms but that doesn't mean they don't go up there sometimes so they rather than letting you peer into the world of Scientology the real world of the Sea Org they'll just close the blinds because that way it's just yep, looks nice looks good and you can't see anything that's basically the idea Okay, everybody, if you have any other Flash questions for me, by the way, please do drop them in the comment section below. I would like more of them. Uh, also, of course, any questions you have for me, but I'm particularly soliciting for Flash answers right now because I don't have too many of them in the queue. Uh, again, if you want that autographed copy of one of my books, I've only got a few of those left, so uh, order those through PayPal. Send me a note, send me an email, send me a line, on, drop me a line on that, and I will ship that out to you. All right, guys, thanks for coming around. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.